Welcome to A Drink with a Friend. I'm Seth Haynes. And I'm Tish Oxenreiter. Tish, tell me what is it that you are drinking? Since we're always drinking with friends, we're always drinking together. We are. <laughs> Sounds weird. It does um, sound weird, but it it's is true. My, it is true. It's my daily coffee, so nothing fancy, but it's the stuff I like. Um we're recording just after lunch. My cutoff is really soon on caffeine, so I'm chugging it down while I can. It's rainy and gray here and has been for a while, and which I like, especially at summer, you know, in Central yep. Texas. I'll take it, but yep. it does make me sleepy. So it is just my Ethiopian stuff from the grocery store, but it's really well made. It's an heirloom variety, so it has that blueberry Oh, Jasmine hint. Oh, so it's man. it's my go-to favorite, and it's mm. not too expensive. And um, it, the brand is Cafe Crail, so we have it at our HEBs here. So if you're in Texas, okay. maybe look it up. HEB, okay. they make another appearance on the podcast, just <laughs> always popping up here. They show up a lot in live yeah. and on podcasts. Yeah, How about well, you? There you go. What are you? I doing? am. Yeah, I'm. I'm probably doing something that is sacrilegious and de- well, desacralizing my body <laughs> all at the same time. I um, am drinking Pepsi Zero. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm not sure if it's called Pepsi Zero or Pepsi Zero Sugar, but it says Pepsi, and then under it says Zero Sugar, but it kind of has a zero in the branding. Okay. Is it Diet Coke equivalent? Because I don't know anything about soda. Why is the question, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I think it is a Coke Zero equivalent. And so I decided to try it to see if it is different than um, Coke Zero. And I haven't even had my first taste yet. So I'm just going to do it live here on the show. All right. Mm. Yeah, it's terrible. (laughs) Is there a difference between Coke Zero and Diet Coke? I have no idea. Yeah, it's um, one has less chemicals than the other, and I'm not sure which one. (laughs) Both of them are chemically terrible for you and probably cause cancer and poison rats. Um, But one, I think, is supposed to be better uh, because it has aspartame versus, I don't know. Whatever it is. Stevia or something. I don't know. Whatever. Who cares? I don't know. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, yeah, it's it's just a different uh, chemical sweetener. All right. Well, you know what? It's okay that you are drinking soda. We're not. It's really not. It's we're not, not legalistic here. Is we're not legalistic, but it's not okay because I just had a taste of it and it's uh, <laughs> terrible. Yeah. I mean, this sounds legalistic, and I don't mean it to. It's just I haven't drank a soda in probably a decade because I've lost the taste for it. I mean, I'm yeah. not a purist. I get that there are times and places to drink soda. I just. I can't stomach the taste. So like if I drank that during an episode, I would probably throw up afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I'm probably not going to drink much more of it, to be honest. <laughs> this might be the first drink with a friend where I had a drink and that was it. <laughs> okay. A sip it's with a friend. probably going to be yeah. a sip with a friend. Yeah. Right. Right. So there you go. <laughs> All right. So if cool. anyone here likes Pepsi Zero, I'm terribly sorry. It's um, it's not my jam. Neither is Coke Zero. Neither is Diet Coke, really. Neither is really anything that is a cola flavored beverage. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Same. All right. So Tish, uh, Mm -hmm. what are we talking about today? Tell me what we're talking about. 
Well, so at the time of this recording, it's early summer, and at least in the Northern Hemisphere, and I think a lot of us are thinking about travel, right? Not only because it's summertime, and if we have kids, it's the easiest time to travel, but also it is, um, I hate to say the end of the pandemic, because who knows anything, right? Yeah. But at right. least here in the U.S., numbers have gone down substantially enough to where it feels relatively safe to travel with caution. And I don't know about you, but I am itching to get the heck out of Dodge. Oh, man. Totally. I miss it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do you all have travel plans this summer yeah. as a family? Well, we, yeah, we do. We actually had we, – we, we had originally decided to stay closer to home because I don't know if you've noticed this, but since everything's kind of opened back up, it seems like prices of places to stay have skyrocketed. Yes, they have. And car rentals are – impossible to find and flights are bloated in price. Yeah. So this is not just us. This is a real thing. It's a real thing in the yeah. industry. Yep. It stinks. Yeah. So we were looking to go to the beach because it's kind of what we do. Amber's a beach person. I'm a mountains person, but she normally wins. And so we were looking to go to the beach and we could not find anything that was in like mm. sort of the typical price range that we uh, go for. Um, and so we, we booked a place that was close to town in the Ozarks here. Uh, on the sure. Buffalo River, which if you've never been to the Buffalo River, it is an amazing, beautiful um, uh, national park. And in fact, it is the first, I did not know this until quite recently, it is the first national river uh, in the country. So it was really? the first national park based around a river. So oh. anyway, it's a gorgeous place, one of our favorite places to play. Um, and so we had booked this little uh, place, uh, whether it was through VRBO or Airbnb, I don't really remember. So anyway, we, we had booked that and then Amber found a little place on the beach that was affordable. And so we sort of reoriented as of yesterday. So yes, we are traveling. We're going to the beach nice. um, in Alabama on the Gulf and <laughs> then we'll go up and see her family. She's an Alabama girl. So we're traveling uh, to vacate and then traveling to see family. And then we'll make the big circle back home. What kind of drive is that for you from Northwest Arkansas to the Gulf Shores? Um, it is a jaunt. I think it's like 12 hours or something. And then okay. from there to her uh, folks house, I think is like four hours. And then back home is like another, you know, 10 hours, nine, 10 hours. So it yeah. is no small amount of driving, but right. we always have fun. We like road tripping together. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's fun I times. Do. Are you guys are you guys traveling? I mean, I can't imagine Tish Oxenrider and Kyle <laughs> Oxenrider not traveling the very second that travel is opened up. Yeah, we we both feel a bit like we're missing half an arm because it doesn't we don't feel like ourselves and just because we haven't traveled in so long. Um, we are. We are actually road tripping as well. We're gonna save, we've got some miles built up. And for flying, but we're going to use those in the fall, we think. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, our kids have a fall break in school, kind of usually off the calendar of when other schools do. So we're hoping to find better flights. So we're going to fly in the fall, but we're going to road trip this summer. And we have a long road trip as well. We go up to Oregon. And so mm. from Texas, it's several days. However, our big change, whatever you want to call it, is we just recently bought a new to us travel trailer. It's a pop-up. Yes. So it's not, we don't, we didn't prefer a pop-up, but we also preferred not having to buy a gas guzzling huge truck yeah. to haul it. Yeah. So we figured this is the middle road where we can use our regular family car to pull and it's a really big pop-up. So it like has enough room for all of us Yeah, and it's 
it's really nice, super well taken care of. So anyway, I say all this because we tend to camp on our way up to Oregon because once we've discovered, once you get past roughly Abilene, Texas, there's kind mm-hmm. of a line that we've mm-hmm. discovered, it stops being so dadgum humid and buggy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's when camping in the summer becomes fun again. Yeah. So right. to me, anything east of that, I, I mean... It just feels sticky all the time. Yeah. So to me, the East, you know, Eastern United States, it's better to camp in the spring and fall, but the West is best during the summer, I think, because it's so just true. so dry and it cools down at night. So even if it's hot in the middle of the day, you don't, you know, want to hurt somebody. And so um, yep. we are, we just mosey our way up and then mosey our way back down. And we are still making plans on what to do as we mosey. There's so many things that we still have not done. Like if you think of all the national parks between Texas and Oregon, just depending on the route you take, there's more than you could ever possibly do. So we're just, we're, we think we're going to do redwoods this time. So we oh, think we're going to, wow. yeah, yeah. Which we have not done. And it feels sacrilegious to like, wave at the exit as we drive past it on the way to Oregon. So we think we want to actually pull over and spend a few nights there. So that sounds incredible. That sounds incredible. Yeah. Um, So have you and Kyle ever done the Redwoods before? Have you ever seen them before? Uh, No, actually. Have you? No. In fact, I was in San Francisco um, years ago. And we kind of had some free time that we could opt to go to Napa or to the Redwoods. And at the time, I was still drinking um, quasi heavily. And so we chose Napa, obviously. Sure. And I've been to Napa and I get it. It's beautiful there, too. It's gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, the reason we haven't is simply because we have been slowly checking our way through so many other things to see, you know, through Utah and Moab and Arches and Glacier and Yellowstone. And so there's there's so much to do on the way that this is Redwood time. So um, kind of a fun thing is our oldest is going to fly up early. She's going to go up a little bit early to spend extra time with the grandparents and so I think we're just going to gun it up, um, meaning not do the Redwoods on the way. We're going to do it on the way back yeah. so she can be with us. And I think yeah. that'll be really nice. Like we've already spent the family time, which we're we're eager to do because it's been a few weeks. Yeah. I mean, a few weeks. It's been a few years since yeah. we've seen that side yeah. of the family. But after a few weeks with family, it'll just be nice to kind of spread out in, among really big trees and just kind of be so we're Yeah, eager. totally. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So um, we're talking a little bit about the sacramentality of travel or mm-hmm. um, maybe the way we see God in all things, including travel. And I know that you kind of, I mean, is expert a strong word? I think you're an expert on several things. Mm-hmm. And and this is one where I think that you have developed some expertise and I just want to learn from you. So okay. this is one of those episodes where um, I think uh, I'm the interviewer and you're the interviewee. You, you're going to be the expert uh, professor here today. How you feel about okay. that? Is that okay? I can be an I can be an expert for like half an hour. Okay, so we can fine. pretend. Totally. Sure. Yeah. I mean, but we're not pretending, listeners. She is the real expert. So, <laughs> tell me. You know, you've written uh, an entire book at home in the world about um, traveling abroad and your experiences traveling. And in fact, one of the most fascinating things about that book to me, now that we're talking about this, is how you talked, was it in Chiang Mai where you connected with the spiritual director? 
I did. Yeah. Isn't that amazing yeah. that I remember that? See, that's how it is weird. <laughs> your book is. Um, but it, there was this moment in that book, and I don't know if it's expressly written this way. That's where my memory fails me. But where you sort of um, realize that this travel, travel for the sake of travel, like is not enough. It's it's somehow a little bit more stressful, a little busier than you thought. And so you you go and you find the spiritual director and you start walking through, talking through some of these things. Like there's got to be a bigger purpose to this travel, right? And I think over the course of the years, throughout that book, you see it kind of play out that way. And then over the course of years, I think you've really developed some expertise on like why travel is important, why travel is important to us. Um, not just because it's fun, but as spiritual sort of people, as a spiritual practice. So tell me a little bit about that. I want to know, first of all, like, why did you go to the spiritual director while you were in the middle of a world travel program? And what did you learn uh, uh, from that uh, experience? Yeah. So we spent six weeks in Thailand and that was enough time when we parked for us to do a little soul care because what we found on this trip, for those who don't know, and that's fine, we spent a school year backpacking around the world and we went to 30 different countries. And that sounds like a lot and that's because it was, but what we did was we did a lot of whirlwind, uh, fast travel followed by parking and doing slow restorative kind of travel. And so this was one of those moments where we just stopped for a while. Um, And so I wanted to meet with someone who, had, you know, she she was American. So she understood an expat mindset. She understood the value of just being somewhere else. So I knew I didn't already have to like unpack that idea or explain it. And I also wanted someone because of the nature of the weird work that we do, and perhaps what I did even more then than I do now, I wanted someone who had some distance from that, who could actually see with perspective, the ridiculousness of perhaps American Christianity or Western Christianity and mm-hmm. maybe the the bloated internet perspective or like em- emphasis, I suppose. Yeah. In other words, she wasn't impressed by much, which is good. <laughs> and so I met with her several times just to unpack where do I belong in the world? Where do I fit in regards to my work? And why do I do what I do, really? Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately the question that turned out the whole trip is about. And more poignantly, perhaps, where do I belong? And she really helped me unpack the idea of belonging and home and really why we do what we do. And so kind of the combination of that and like the intersection of having some spiritual direction with travel helped me really unpack this idea. I don't know about you. You know, I, I was very middle class. We didn't go on a lot of big highfalutin trips as yeah. a family. Yep. So I equated travel with either something that was not for me because it was privileged, like some yep. form of privileged escapism, or as a Christian, it needed to be like, quote, missional, or right. you go on a trip, but with the idea of how can I help here? Yeah. Did you have that at all, or is that my weird baggage? Oh, 100%. No, I think okay. anybody who was raised in any sort of you know, church setting in the 70s, 80s, or 90s probably has that exact same baggage. And again, I mean, for those of you listening who who aren't acquainted with that sort of upbringing, I mean, this was the same, I mean, this was the age where people were still calling, you know, things crusades, you know, and, <laughs> and like trying yeah. to go out and save souls was like your regular thing, like the regular idea. So yeah, we would go to, you know, wherever it was, whether it was Matamoros or Arizona or, you know, sometimes Chicago. One time I think I went to Chicago. Um, and the idea there was just to find places where you could 
help. I mean, it wasn't just yeah. like get to know the people or, uh, you know, get to eat the food or get to experience the culture and see what you can find. And, um, as you explore, it was more like, Hey, go there and figure out how you can save the community, <laughs> yep. save the people, save whatever. Um, it was, right. it was very, uh, uh, it was a conquering mindset, I guess. Yep. Yep. That's a great word to put it because that's essentially what I believed too. You know, it, we did do things like occasional ski trips as a family, but there was still a churchiness to it, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, and so the trip reminded me, you know, as I did some unpacking and this was honestly when I really started dipping my toe into the idea of more of a historic ancient church because when you travel, you can't help but see like, well, there's a lot more to um, the idea of being a Christian than what is on the suburban street corner in America, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so um, so I started unpacking some of that. And this was such a head smack because I knew this, but I didn't really connect with this. People have been taking pilgrimages since humans have existed. Mm -hmm. And pilgrimages essentially are trips to specific places for a meaningful journey to something sacred. So right. if pilgrimages are meaningful journeys to sacred places, what does that look like? And, you know, does sacred need to be, you know, Mecca or Jerusalem or Rome, or can it be this coffee shop in the middle of nowhere, someone's living room, the woods, a beach? And this is what I really started learning post Chiang Mai, this idea of like, what does it mean to be on a meaningful journey to somewhere sacred? And perhaps what does God want to show me through that if I'm not here to quote, serve, if I'm here to be a person. Mm -hmm. And from that, I, I learned about the idea of when you make travel a form of a pilgrimage and not pilgrimage like proper noun, almost yeah. more like your posture, yeah. then it becomes an act that's good for your soul and it draws you closer to God and it makes you a better human. Those three things. And that's yeah. what I've come to like really lean into and unpack um, more specifically. And I bet you have too. And I bet most people have as well. Like if anybody's thinking about a previous trip as they're listening and they're nodding their head in agreement, like that was more than just a trip. That was a form of a pilgrimage. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So what were those three things again? Okay. So the idea that travel is good for your soul, mm -hmm. travel draws you closer to God and mm -hmm. travel makes you a better human mm. if you let it. Mm. So um, that to me is what turns a trip into a pilgrimage. Those yeah. three things. That's really so, good. I, I remember the first time I experienced anything like that. I had a friend who was doing some subsistence farming in Northern Mozambique. Uh, he's my college roommate um, we went to a small private school and of course he went there with this idea of, you know, missions or whatever. Um, and that, that very quickly shifted for him. And the shift there was more of like, how can I be here and, and try to like tend to souls or whatever when like people are starving. And so his idea shifted from uh, tending to souls to tending to dirt and just mm. getting to know the people. And um, mm. and it was a really beautiful way of being. I went out to visit him. And I remember going out there and thinking, I don't really know what this is about. But what I know for fact is that I'm not going to serve anyone. I'm not going to save anyone. I'm not going to do anything other than to hang out with my friend in northern Mozambique who just, you know, I hadn't seen in years and, and needed a buddy to come visit him. And I needed to get out of town and go visit him. Um, 
And so I remember meeting the people of that village. They've left an impression on me forever. Um, I, you know, we, we hoed some rows together, not, you know, as a service, but just because that's what he had to do. So that's what I did. Um, there was a point where, um, there was a cattle that, a cow that had this like sort of mange disease. And so we had to wrestle a cow to the ground and, you know, put some topical ointment on it. I mean, it was not a glamorous (laughs) trip. And I remember coming back from that and being so full and I didn't leave anything with those people. In fact, they left everything with me. Um, And I remember just thinking like there was something about my view of the world that shifted in that moment. And there was something about my view of African poverty that shifted in the moment. Like Hmm. it wasn't Mm -hmm. like, you know, it was shown on TV with the flies in the eyes and all that BS, you know, it was, it, it was actually like people were, were really happy to be with each other and serve each other and do the best they could to make it through their lives um, as a community um, that was extremely joyful. And I just, I I just came back thinking, man, that, that is such a human way to live life and so beautiful. And so much more than if I had gone to say like, Hey, I'm going to go deliver these, you know, whatever Bibles to them or uh, whatever it is I would have done in my early, you know, teens. How um, old were you? With my church upbringing. Um, Fourth year of the legal practice, 2008 is when I went. So yeah, I would have been 31. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a good time to, to have an experience like that. Yeah. It was a shift for me from viewing people as like things to be served um, Mm -hmm. and to viewing people as people you know, who wanted to get to know me because I was different and I wanted to get to know them because they were different. Um, And in that, you just experience something that feels a lot more um, relational and a lot more spiritual. Hmm. And I would say like when you have that pilgrimage mindset, it can, you can have that same kind of experience, whether you're visiting a friend in Africa or, you know, going on a road trip just an hour away with your family. Yeah. And I think the reason is because travel forces us to be more in the present than when we're at home, just checking things off our to-do list. Um, You know, it forces us to be present because we can't not be, you know, we're sitting in the car. We don't have much to do except to be with our kids. And what are you going to do? You're going to talk. You're going to listen to an audio book. You're going to do, do something of that, nature that really can tend to your soul. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I've had some of the best conversations on road trips, you know? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, every time. And I think there's a reason for that. I think travel also forces you to slow down, which is especially true for us Americans. Um, you know, if if we go cross-culturally or overseas, you're going to be forced to go so much slower than you normally do. But I think that can be even when we, you know, travel within our own state, you just live a little slower. You know, it takes time to get someplace, you got to get set up, you, you're somewhere different. And so just normal life slows down. And I think we need that not think I know we need that so much more than we realize. So yeah. Yeah. So when you're traveling, how is it that you mm-hmm. tend to um, to those three categories? I mean, do you, do you carry those around with you consciously or is it something that just happens or um, how do you go about approaching travel as pilgrimage? It's both conscious now because I've unpacked it, but it's not conscious in that I sit there with those ideas, you know, like as though I'm 
creating my own personal PowerPoint in my head. I still want to be fully present wherever I'm at. So I'm going to just enjoy the moment. Um, for me, it's a lot of um, being off the screen. And so I do my best to limit my screen time when we travel. You know, sometimes it's forced on you. You know, you're going through a dead zone uh, on a long road trip. You have to. You're sitting on a plane. You're in airplane mode, literally. Right. <laughs> so um, being off a screen certainly helps because when we look at a screen, you know, there's definitely good reasons to do that. You know, you need maps. You need to look up a place to stop for lunch, whatever. But um, whenever we're just, you know, we're at a beautiful place or we're at just someplace different. And yet we're on Instagram scrolling and looking at other people's perhaps literal trips at the moment. We are we are forcing our brains to disengage from our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so when we disconnect, we miss out on the here and now, and therefore the sacramentality of what we're doing to begin with. Yeah. And, and because travel provides such a good um, sensory awakening, you know, yeah. Yeah. there are new things to look at, new smells, new sounds, even new touches in a way. Yeah. Um, you miss out on that if you're always on your phone. Yeah. So I have learned from experience to put away my phone as best I can. Um, when we were on a longer trip, I used my phone mostly as a camera, yet we also brought a DSLR for that reason so that we felt like, you know, I am using this piece of technology for capturing of photos, not to, you know, mindlessly scroll. And that helped. But um, I don't know, just putting away the phone, not it, my go-to here in normal life is to listen to music or have an audiobook going, but like ab actually disengaging from that or disconnecting from that really helps. Um, what do you do? Do you feel, do you use your phone a lot when you travel? I do. And I probably should not. But again, I mean, we've talked about this before. I'm terrible with my phone. Um, and I, I work mm. really hard to not be, but it happens. Yeah, it does. I do. I, but one of the, I remember when we were in um, Italy and I don't actually remember if it was you or if it was the tour guide, but we, somebody had brought up or brought up this idea when we were going to see uh, the David that if you mm -hmm. uh, look at the crowd, most people will be looking at the David through their phones. This was years ago too. I mean, before like the ubiquity of, of all of these like really, really high tech phones. Right. Um, I can't, was that yeah. five years ago, six years ago? It's almost seven. Yeah. Seven years ago. So, yeah. um, but still you would go in and everybody was on their phone looking up, you know, holding it as a camera, which was super interesting. And then everybody who didn't have their phone up using it as a camera was using their DSLR or their point and shoot or whatever it was. Um, and I actually think that that's okay to the extent that you're simply using it, like you said, as a camera, you're like taking the photo uh, for later and going to come back to it. And then you spend some time in the presence of the art or in the presence of the food or in the presence of the people and people just weren't even paying attention. They were just like scooting on by so they could snap their quick pick with the David and get on. Um, right. And there's something about that that feels like you're desacralizing someone else's art and someone else's effort and and this like wonder of the world um, because yeah. you want your quick pick and move on. So I think part of my practice has been as I travel is to try to like, yes, take the photo, grab the photo, get it, you know, edit it later, do whatever you want to do. But also once you do that, stop and spend some time 
really contemplating what you're looking at and uh, really making a memory, not through the lens, but through your body. Right. And I think, you know, taking photos can be a form of art and appreciating the moment because um, it is a, it is an art form. You know this better than me. Um, But I've also personally experienced the fact that there are millions of people who have taken better photos of said amazing item than I have. Yeah. And so it's not really going to, I will take a photo so long as it aids in my experience. And then when I put it away, I can trust that there's tons of photos out there that I can enjoy for the specificity. Like when I think of the David, um, I took a few photos to mark my time, but there's lots of zoomed in pictures we can then look at with the veins and with, you know, the details of Michelangelo. The Eiffel Tower is literally the most photographed landmark in the world. It's the most Instagrammed. It's the most Instagram landmark (laughs) in the world. So your taking it is not going to necessarily add to the collection that is already out there. Um, So take it to mark your time, but not to like capture something that hasn't been captured a million times and probably better from some other people. That's my take. Yeah. And I don't, I don't disagree with that with the caveat that if you're a photographer, like take your time, take your time, take a good photograph Take something that you can edit later if that's your art form or one of your art forms. Like, don't waste that. I mean, that's, you know, when are you going to get back to the Eiffel Tower? I think if I were going to the Eiffel Tower tomorrow, I would actually block some time out and say, hey, Amber, I'm going to be looking through my camera a lot for this next 30 minutes. Um, Sure. Just because it's a form of art that I appreciate and enjoy. But otherwise, (laughs) yeah, man, take it to mark the time and then move on from your phone. Move on from your phone, not from the place. <laughs> and I remember the last time I was at the Eiffel Tower, I purposely took uh, uh, unconventional angles. Like I, yeah. I took them, you know, while I was up there of the sides, you know, walking up the stairs, just interesting angles that yeah. people forget because they just want to take the big, you know, several hundred feet away view. So yeah. 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 I think another way that travel is sacramental is that it draws us closer to God by reminding us of our smallness and how little we matter, but in a good way, if that makes sense. Yes. You know, it's so easy to become myopic. We all do this, but we're at the center of our own universes and we forget how many like 7 billion universes there are in that way. And so when you rub shoulders with people, you know, be it through an airport, when you've got a connecting flight or, you know, at a diner you've never been to before and there's all these locals that you'll never see again, it reminds you of all the stories in the world and what all has happened. You know, whenever we are driving and we're going in between towns, I am endlessly fascinated by those like farmhouses or one stoplight towns where people live. And I just think, what is life like here? And why does one live here? Not in a judgy way, in a fascinating way. And I think travel draws us closer to God through that because we were reminded of like what I'm called to do and where I live and who I serve and live among is just one tiny way of, of living. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think my last experience of this was in Santa Fe. We went to uh, the cathedral there in downtown Santa Fe, which I know you've probably been to. And it's amazing. Um, It's an amazing little site. It's the cathedral of St. Francis. And I remember um, we passed this man and he was clearly, you know, a drifter of some sort. I don't know that he was homeless, but he certainly appeared to be. And he had a backpack and some pretty ratty sandals. And um, he had taken his uh, sandals off. He was massaging his feet. And he was sitting by this 
uh, massive statue of St. Francis. And we walked by and uh, we got a little ways down. And my oldest kind of with tears in his eyes said, we need to go back and ask that guy, you know, if he needs anything, like we need to offer him help. And so never turn your kids down when they say this. Right. And so we went back and approached the man and said, Hey, you know, we'd like to give you something. And, and this man looked at him and he just smiled and he said, you know what? I've got everything that I need. I have uh, this massive statue. I have this fountain here and the birds are coming and I have this book that I'm reading. Um, and I have some food in my backpack and I really appreciate it, but I don't need your money. I don't need anything. Um, Mm -hmm. and he had chosen to live this sort of way and it was a beautiful way, um, for him to live. And it was just another, uh, experience of the human life that is not what we've chosen. Um, that is really, really dependent on God as his way in the world. Um, and it was really beautiful and I felt really, really small. Um, and he didn't sit up to make us feel small, but just his life choice made us feel like, oh, we are imputing something onto him that he actually doesn't need. Um, Mm. And so, yeah, I think it's these little things. It's not just like the Grand Canyon makes me feel small or this cathedral makes me feel small, but it's these little experiences with others you have along the way who've chosen very, very different lives that can sometimes make you feel really small in a beautiful, good way. Yeah. I think, I think it's okay to feel small. I don't think it's a, um, oh, it's disparaging. I think we're all small and it's just a matter of whether we choose to recognize it. You know, yeah. I think we think that we're more important than we are. <laughs> and, and it's good to be reminded that we are not that important in the big scheme of things. And yet God chooses to interact our lives with other people and use us in weird ways. So there is that. So I'm not saying life is pointless. I'm saying simply we're all small and it's good to remember that. Yeah. Agreed. Hey guys, a quick break from our conversation to tell you about StoryWorth, which you've heard me talk about before because they're one of the long-term sponsors of the show. And it's honestly because I really and truly love what they do and what they're about. And I think you will too, if you haven't yet tried them. These days, we're all longing for more connection and more authentic and deeper relationships. And StoryWorth is genuinely a fantastic way to help you do that. So here's what they're about. Every week for a year, StoryWorth will email someone you choose one question to answer. Things like, what was your first date like? What are some of your favorite songs? What was your first job like? Tell me about one of your most memorable teachers. You can choose the question StoryWorth has already, or you can create your own. Your person then sends StoryWorth their answers, and after a year, all their answers are compiled along with any additional submitted photos into a beautifully bound published book that StoryWorth sends to you for free. It's a beautiful keepsake for future generations to cherish, and it gives you a peek into your loved one's life through prompts you'd probably never think to ask. So as you know, Father's Day is coming up soon, and giving StoryWorth to a beloved father figure in your life is such a great way to honor them. It's especially great these days when we still can't be with so many of our loved ones in person, especially our dads. If there's ever been a time to make the dads in your life feel soon, it is this one. And having this keepsake book to read stories you've probably heard a hundred times or, you know, maybe for the first time just might help you find more strength and encouragement to handle whatever it is you're facing these days. So to give StoryWorth for Father's Day, or for any reason at all, really, go to storyworth.com slash drink, and you'll save $10 off your first purchase. 
So that's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash drink to get $10 off. All right, back to our chat. So I would also argue that travel is sacramental because it makes us better humans. And I'll bet you people listening right now can understand this perhaps more resolutely because um, you might not love travel. You know, perhaps you're listening to this and thinking, oh my gosh, it is so much work, all the packing and my kids whine and it's expensive. (laughs) And I would argue that travel makes us better humans because it does just that. It cultivates patience with the people we love the most and yet are also (laughs) probably most irritated by. Yep. we have to cultivate patience with ourselves. Like, I don't know about you, but I get annoyed at my own self and I can't escape myself. Yeah. Um, and it just, you know, and then we have to cultivate patience with other cultures, you know, whether they are literal, you know, different cultures politically, like we're in a different country or just a different way of life in a different city that perhaps is different than what we're used to. We just have to be more patient. And I would argue that those are good things, even if in the moment they don't feel good. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you cultivate that patience when you're on a road trip and you begin to hear, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right. Well, I, we have a just general family rule called asked and answered and that we use that a lot, um, even at home to where it forces our kids to, well, it doesn't always work and that's okay because they're (laughs) on a journey. They are on a journey. But um, we'll say asked and answered whenever we've already answered the question. So if someone asks, are we there yet? And it's been several hours since I've asked. And, you know, what they really mean is how much more time. Because literally, we're clearly not there yet. Right. Um, We'll say, you know, we've got 200 miles more to go. And Kyle, he's, he's funny. He does. He is so good at spatial reasoning. He doesn't quite understand that those of us like me don't quite understand what 200 miles feels yeah, like, Yeah, but he really likes the idea of, of travel being a tool to help educate our kids in this department. So he will then say something like, um, notice, notice the time, like the sun and where it is, you know, hold out your hand, how many more fingers until the sunset. So therefore how much time has been passed? Think about what I said about 200 miles and what do you think? Um, but really, if we're get, if we're asked again, are we there yet? We'll just say asked and answered. And I get it's easier when the kids are older. So when you have a two-year-old, they don't care if that's been asked and answered. I know. I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, for me, it's helpful to remember that travel is easier the more you travel. Yeah. So you might feel like it's a suicide kamikaze mission yeah. to take a two-year-old to visit the grandparents across two states. And it might be miserable, but just keep in mind that this isn't all there is. And I promise you in two years, it will get easier. And in two years, it'll get even easier because they are getting used to this. And so our kids, by the end of the trip, you know, a a lot of people will frequently say, I can't believe you did this with three kids, nine and under, because my kids are terrible travelers. I'll say, well, the reason my kids are good travelers is because we travel. Yeah, right. It's not like they're like equipped with some special gifts or something. Right, right. it just becomes the normal. And so I would say the same for us. Whenever we have that same, like, I can't believe we're still driving. Um, we don't act as though, like, I can't believe we're so impatient with ourselves. It's like, yeah, traveling to Oregon is really long. And that's okay. So to give ourselves kind of permission to be human, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I know you've led groups um, on different mm-hmm. trips, um, yeah. internationally, locally, whatever. Um, and and I know that you've probably butted up against the patience issue, not just with children, but with full grown <laughs> adults. Um, yes. So how do we cultivate that even as adults? I mean, when, when you travel anywhere, I don't know if you've ever traveled. Well, actually, I do know that you've traveled to East Africa. When you travel to anywhere um, in Africa, they, they talk a lot about African time. Like the locals will talk about African time and just say, hey, we'll meet yep. you at 10, which may mean nine or maybe one o'clock. I mean, it just whatever. Um, and, and I've been with people who've been extremely frustrated by that. How do we cultivate a sense of patience um, that's not just like patient with the drive time, but that actually recognizes that culturally speaking, like time is is sort of a relative concept? <laughs> yeah, there's actually a lot of cultural um, things like that, that we realize, gosh, my definition of time is different than probably most anywhere around the world, because I guarantee you that concept of time has been in true in most of the non-Western countries I've been to, right. for example. Um, same with waiting in lines. You know, we love lines in the U.S. and we think there is one way to make a line, which is single, single file. And the person in front of you is next and the person behind you is after you. That is our assumption about lines. Many, many cultures around the world do not have that assumption. It is a um, survival of the fittest with lines, you know? And so just because you are in front of that person, that does not mean they will not just push you out of the way and be next. And it's culturally acceptable. I say all that as an example, because um, that is something that I find more than the slowness that, um, that ruffles my, my American sensibilities more than just about anything else. So, um, you know, it's funny, we become like children in some ways when we travel. So it's easy to, to scoff at the kid asking, are we there yet? But how often do we do that as adults? Right. Right. Um, I think the two things that have helped me, and I say this because I'm still working on it, it's not like I've arrived, is recognizing it instead of pretending like it's not there. So, um, and I might recognize it literally. I might turn to Kyle and say, we are in a line, and yet this person behind us just cut in front. That is really frustrating to me. Or we're waiting for a bus. And the the schedule on the wall says the bus should be here. It's been 15 minutes. It is not here. Um, acknowledging that to me goes a long way. Yeah. It's like diffusing diffusing my expectations because I'm vocalizing it. And I am, I am recognizing that this is my perspective and it's only one perspective. Yeah. Um, that sounds trite, I realize. And it almost feels trite because I might be saying it through gritted teeth. But somehow just acknowledging it, just like acknowledging when you're stressed or sleepy or hungry, um, does make it just a little bit better. It's in the same way. And then secondly, I think if we just remember long term, when we travel, even when it's the next town over, we're mostly going to learn. Yeah. We are going as visitors, as literal visitors. Mm -hmm. And so if we are going, even if we're on a, quote, mission trip to make things better wherever we are, we're still visitors and we are there to learn. And to remember that because it's a trip, it's temporary. You know, we're not there to, to say, this is how my life is going to be from now on. Um, 
to recognize that with a learner's posture, you can go a long way to realizing, you know, in my mind, the cutoff for the amount of people that should be on the subway should have ended (laughs) two stops ago. And yet, you know, in China, it is still being crammed full of people, huh? That is not my favorite. Right. My favorite is not smelling this person's armpit right in my nose with nowhere to move. This is not cool. Recognizing it and remembering I'm here to learn and this is temporary goes a long way, but that doesn't mean you'll ever arrive. Yeah. And I think that's one of the beauties of travel, you know, and what makes it so sacramental is it forces us to depend on God. Um, even if it's vacation, we right. really do. Right. It's not, it's not perfect on purpose. Right. So yeah. with that being said, Um, as we sort of wind down this conversation, tell me, as we consider things like vacation to the beach or to the mountains, maybe not international travel yet, maybe a vacation to go see your parents. Tell me, uh, how can I, and how can the listener, um, use it or what's, you know, how can we posture ourselves in that vacation so that it becomes pilgrimage? Mm hmm. All right. Um, I mean, I could talk another hour about this, so I'll just do the shorthand version. How to turn a trip into a pilgrimage, right? Um, one really practical way is to pack less than you think you need. Um, how often do we end up packing what we think is like our entire wardrobe and then we wear the same three t-shirts the entire time? Yes. Um, <laughs> pack half as much as you think you need. And if you most, like 99% of the world, if you end up without something that you need, you can go get it. Yeah. You know, toothpaste is all over. Yeah. So, so there is a sacramental beauty to living with less. Right. And, and it, it makes it really embodied. You know, it reminds us of our physicality whenever we are literally choosing the same three t-shirts. It turns out that was one of my favorite parts about our big long trip, by the way, side note, I loved only having a few things yeah. and yep. carrying everything I own for a year. So yep. um, even for a weekend, pack way less than you think you do, you need to. Yeah. Um, I would say depending on your situation, like if you have a little kid or something, pack something that marks your identity as a clan where you are oh, that's and still good. do that that's thing. Good. Yeah. So um, for some families, like if you have a toddler, that might literally look like a beloved stuffy or a book, like a bedtime ritual or something like that. And you still do that at the place. You still do that wherever you are. Um, And it makes that connection of like your identity with the place. And so that you don't feel, I mean, you still feel like a foreigner, but you, you feel like you belong in that place a little bit more and that you haven't changed completely as a person, you know? Um, If you're, if you're maybe not traveling with kids, I would say the same goes for you, you know, as a person, get something really tangible and granular, like a rock to keep in your pocket, prayer beads, um, a notebook and pencil that you can just mark your place, your placeness in that place or, or the time you're there um, so that you can remember later, you know, we're sensory people. Yeah. So, um, if you've got prayer beads in your pocket and you're looking at this museum and there's a crowd all around you and you just feel this like uh, this is a tourist trap by fingering those prayer beads in your pocket, you will kind of connect your body to that place. And yes. months later, you'll say like, oh, my gosh, I was in the Louvre. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Right. You know, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Uh, um, always have a book as well. Um, 
you know, maybe I'm biased in that way, but books <laughs> do the same thing. Yeah. Um, perhaps pick a, a work of fiction set in the place where you're going. Yeah. That's always fun. I tried to do that on our trip. I read uh, All the Light We Cannot See in France. Oh, and that was really, that really connected it, you yeah, know? Right. Um, but don't put pressure on yourself. You don't need to read like some heavy tome about the history of the place if that's not you, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, be you still in that. So those are probably my shorthand suggestions to make it more sacred and more sacramental. Mm, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Um, and I also love that you read All the Light We Cannot See in France. That makes me a little <laughs> was, bit jealous. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. It was great. It, um, I, I recommend five out of five stars. Well, <laughs> do I, it if you can. Yeah. I love, I love this idea and I love these sort of embodied practices um, that remind us that we are on a pilgrimage, not just an escape. This is not escapism. Mm -hmm. Um, This is not necessarily about any of those old buzzwords that you heard growing up like mission or service or whatever. Um, But I think approaching life in general as a pilgrimage, um, even if you're not traveling is, is really uh, probably a, a little bit more sacramental way to live your life, to always be looking for God on the path, on the journey, yep. as you make your way from one place to the next. Um, and and I also just want to say, like, I cannot recommend uh, at home in the world enough <laughs> if you want Aww. to sort of dig into this idea and see how it played out in Tish's life. And she did not pay me to say this. I did not, but thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it's but it's true. Like even if you can only armchair travel this summer, you know, you are still going to be at home and you just got books or or whatever. Keep in mind that yeah, if God created the world and if therefore God's fingerprints are all over it, then every place is sacred. That's right. Because by definition, God's creating it. So, um your your living room, your couch is can be sacramental. I love it's important it. to remember. I love mm-hmm. it. So, Tish, tell me Um, As we sort of transition uh, in your pilgrimage over this last week, what is one (laughs) thing that you have been listening to, reading, or watching, or potpourri? I guess it could be another category um, that is bringing more truth, beauty, or goodness to your life. Um, If you follow me on Twitter, you saw that I asked recently, what is something right now that's good to stream uh, to watch that's family friendly, but not made as family friendly. And I think people know what I mean. <laughs> if you've ever watched a show that's yes. made for families and you want to poke your eyeballs out with a fork, that's, you know what I mean? Um, and I got some great ideas. And so we tried one just recently and I love it. And so it's a new show on Netflix. It is called Sweet Tooth. Have you seen this? I uh, know, but I've heard little? about it and it sounds kind of amazing. Well, you know, don't let the name fool you because I thought, oh, is this like a bake-off show or is what is Sweet Tooth about? Um, Nothing like I thought it would be. First of all, it's a DC comic series, news to me, and it is roughly about a dystopian world where all the children born after a certain time are hybrids between human and some other animal. Yeah. Sounds weird. Yes. And it's, it's really good. So we we've watched only two or three episodes now, but I cannot recommend it enough. I love finding a good show that adults and kids, my kids age anyway, can watch 11 and up. Um, Cause they're just in short supply. Yeah. And so yeah. um, I highly recommend it. It's, it's great. I think we're going to go through it pretty quickly, probably by the next time. Um, you know, we record, we'll have seen it all, but I love it so far. Yeah. So that's awesome. Sweet tooth. That's awesome. Okay. Well, I'm, I want to yeah. watch it. We're a huge, 
uh, comic book fans in the Haynes household. Yeah. Um, which go. means I think my kids will be fairly excited about it, but we haven't talked about yeah. it. Um, but mostly because we're counting down to Loki. We are too. Yeah. Uh, I think by the time this airs, it will have been out like two days and we will probably have already watched a substantial amount. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, same here. Yeah. Okay, so what about you? What is a thing you're reading, watching, or listening to that's adding more beauty to your life this this week? So I think we've talked about this before. I think I've actually used this before. But, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, we we record these once a week. And so it's just literally impossible to not have some overlap. Like, there are going to be weeks where you're just still watching, reading, or listening to the exact same thing. And that's just going to have to be okay. You know what I mean? And that's okay. <laughs> um, so at the beginning of Lent, I think I told you, I started um, reading back through T.S. Eliot's poems and I was reading through Ash Wednesday. And so now it's been months since, I, you know, obviously we're, we're well past Easter. So it's been, been months. It's been some time since I kind of made my first way through uh, Ash Wednesday and I read the last two um, installments again uh, today. I just kind of opened them up because I had a, an inkling about it. And um, it's just such beautiful work. And it struck me as I was reading it today how layered it is, how earthy it is, how transcendent and spiritual it is. But you never get the sense that Eliot is trying to somehow like cordon off you know, human beingness from spirituality. You know, I think a lot of times um, in maybe modern Christianity or modern spirituality, like there's, you know, the idea of the sacred and the secular. Um, And there's never a sense that Eliot's trying to like draw that distinction between the sacred and the secular. I mean, he's certainly saying there are things that we do that are, that are, you know, not optimal for our lives. We get stuck between the rocks, so to speak. We need the prayers from the yew trees, so to speak. But um, there's never this idea that that there's like, there are these two fields and that we're dancing in these two separate fields. Um, it's more mm-hmm. of a journey sort of through this life to the to the more transcendent field. Um, and, and so, I don't know, I was just reading this morning and just struck by the idea that um, he's really doing something in that poem that is super beautiful, just showing, I mean, it is showing a pilgrimage a journey from one life to the other life um, through all the difficulty of the modern age, uh, his modern age. And, you know, as an English major in college, I read him and I didn't appreciate him till I was older. And I honestly, probably since um, my late thirties didn't really appreciate him. And I think it's for that reason. He's very experiential. You know, he, he himself, I think a lot of his writing was embodied from his personal experience in war and um, just in relationships with other people. And you can see that. And I, I know exactly what you mean. He is a gift. I, yeah. gosh, the older I get, the more I appreciate T.S. Eliot. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, even just taking a month off and going back to it. I mean, it's like, you mm-hmm. know, we were talking last week, I think, were we talking about the Requiem? Was that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was like, wait, didn't we talk about that? Yeah. Dead people. So just, yep. Yeah. So just as you get, as you listen to the Requiem over and over again, the older you get, the more you, you find these new layers. It's the same thing um, with yep. T.S. Eliot, particularly that poem. So I've really, really enjoyed it. Nice choice. Yeah. I love it. And I love that you're repeating something because what we're saying is it's okay to take your time with some of the stuff. We're not consumers that just need to have something new and exciting every week to enjoy. We can revisit the same thing again and again. Yep. That's right. 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, it is time to wrap this one up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at a drinkwithafriend.com. And if you like what we are bringing to your week, would you kindly go and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts? Uh, for whatever reason, the better a show is reviewed, the more places like Apple and Spotify show it to potential new listeners. So if you like us, well, if you'd like us to keep doing what we're doing, how about that? Um, you can help by leaving a quick review and we really appreciate it. You can find me and all my work, especially my newsletter and books at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, where can people find you? SethHaines.com. It's all right there in one place. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenwriter and Caroline Tassell as our transcriber and assistant extraordinaire. I'm Tish Oxenwriter with Seth Haynes, and we will be back here with you soon. Thanks for listening. 